Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. I'm on the train going to Manchester uh, this yesterday morning and, uh, and we get into Piccadilly Station at, uh, at the end of the journey and, and this lovely guy comes up, he taps me on the shoulder, he's got a copy of the new, I think it's a new issue with, with your column, you know, about uh, uh, the BBC, the controversy of the BBC moving its uh, nerve centre well, to Salford yeah. Keys. Well, it's, it's, it's basically <laughs> operation. Of it. yeah. Yeah, an operation. It's an yeah. operation uh, to, to Manchester and, uh, and all about how you have some sympathy with various of the BBC's, BBC uh, uh, members who don't want to go. And he, 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 he nudges me and he points to his column and said, you seem to be travelling in the wrong direction, mate, according to this <laughs> column by your colleague. Which I thought was very funny, because there he was going to Manchester. At least he didn't um, think you were me. That, well, that's, that's what I was expecting. the normal thing. That's the normal it? thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. People come up and say, I really love your columns, and I obviously take all the credit. They go, yeah, thanks, yeah. Just bash them out. Yeah. Um, they just <laughs> use whichever one they, they think's the best. I just I, I knock them out 20 a day. But I saw the BBC building, which is uh, it's still under construction. I, I was uh, doing, doing a talk in the interview. The wonderful Philip... Townsend, we, uh, the issue before last, we had um, one of his uh, photographs. Mr. Sixties. Mr. Sixties, the very man. He was the guy who did those terrific pictures, the first ever uh, session, in fact, with the Rolling Stones down in Cheney Walk. And we ran them in the And he's got a book. Course. And he's got a book out. And he asked me to come up and, and do an interview with him. And, so how old is he? I would, I suppose he must be early 70s. He's not much older than Stones, you know. Um, but it, it, it's a fantastic exhibition. And it's enthralling to see the... Um, I mean, it's to do with the just timing isn't it it's to do with right right time right place you know he has pictures of uh, harold wilson he's in there in the, on the campaign trail in 1964 wilson campaigned to get elected for the first time he has pictures of um winston churchill taken in 1961 with his great friend aristotle onassis mm-hmm. uh and he explained to me that uh, in order to get this photograph he had to bribe the bodyguard of churchill and he said, is there any way I can take it? He said, look, I'll tell you what, he says, you stand behind that bronze statue there, I'll come out about 10 o'clock with the old boy and with his mate, all right, and you just put your lens out, one shot, and then leg it. Ten quid. <laughs> so I thought, oh, ten quid, quite a lot of money then, of course. Uh, ten quid, you could have bought a, a three-bedroom house in, in, in And he took a one, one shot, did he? One shot. One there it is. Shot. And it's just, it's actually terribly thrilling, you know, for somebody my age to see pe- people of that 
that level of celebrity to see uh, Churchill, to see uh, who else? Yeah, Grace Kelly. Well, that's a big it, it's deal. The, it's me. the one shot thing yeah. that fascinates yeah. me. What's the name of the great observer photographer, Jane Bowne? Mm. Uh, Jane Bowne, who's been taking pictures for the Observer for 40, 50 years, I suppose. And there is a fantastic picture, the definitive portrait of Samuel Beckett, the playwright, where he looks completely eagle-like, extraordinary figure. And this picture was taken, apparently, uh, she had an exhibition not long ago, and she said, the way this picture was taken was, I went to the Royal Court Theatre where he was rehearsing, and said, Mr Beckett, could I possibly take your picture? She was kind of a young woman. And he said, no, don't do that at all. Not, not interested at all. And so she, she just went and waited by the stage door. And as he came out after rehearsals, she just took one picture. And he's looking absolutely straight into the camera. And it's the definitive portrait of Samuel Beckett was taken once. You know, you can't imagine anything that's more of a polar opposite to the Annie Leibovitz. I you couldn't agree more with two or three rejected shoots. Let's go for shoots. the desert for three weeks. Yeah, if that doesn't work out, we'll spike <laughs> it, you know. <laughs> oh, I agree. My old pal, Anton Corbijn, uh, produced a tremendous uh, body of portraits, as you know, which have been put out in a couple of, um, couple of great books and, and exhibitions. And he was trying to get Clint Eastwood. And, um, you know, it's very hard work. Why should these people do this? What's in it for them, you know? Um, there has to be all sorts of legal agreements about the use of the picture. It's very boring and tedious and uh, uh, difficult stuff. And eventually he says, you can come uh, to the room at Cannes Festival. Um, I'm there, I'm doing a couple of interviews, and I will give you 60 seconds... 60 seconds to photograph me. And he was on the uh, balcony of uh, Cannes. Behind him is, 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 is you know, the seafront of Cannes. It's an amazing thing. And Anton had, in fact, managed to get five exposures out of this. And one of those exposures, uh, Eastwood is raising his right hand to the camera to say no more pictures, which obscures half his face in the most extraordinary... And that's the anime. definitive that picture. That is the definitive <laughs> picture, the, I think, the, of Clint Eastwood. Do you know, you know Platon, the, you know, the British oh, yeah, photographer, yeah, yeah. who's taken yeah. pictures for, for Word, actually, he took the picture of Raikuda, didn't he, on the, on the camera? Yes, he did, yeah, the camera. Time ago. And uh, he, he now shoots for the New Yorker. Took the famous picture of Clinton. And they got... Yes, great picture of yep. Clinton. And they got him to take pictures of as many world leaders as he possibly could. I think they, they got something like 70 or something, individual portraits. And he did these in all sorts of circumstances, mainly at the United Nations, you know, room set aside. And negotiating over people, the story that they ran with it, negotiating over people like Robert Mugabe, you know, could you get him there, you know, and how many of his, of his hoods would come with him. Absolutely enthralling story in itself, you know, and you feel your, your pulse racing as you read this story. And you thought, I don't even have the job to do, and I feel really tense on his behalf, you know. It must be extraordinary to do it. Well, that's, um, this exhibition, virtually every one of these pictures, because it's the 1960s and because there isn't the level of uh, control and interference and goonery that there is now, all of them had a great story. He's my favourite, which is actually very well known, and we've published this in, in Word, too, uh, a couple of years ago. But you know the picture. It's of uh, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, and they're in uh, the, the um, uh, main dining room of a hotel in France, and he's been called to say, Taylor and Burton are back together again, and they're a happy couple. And we need a picture of them looking happy. So he's, that's, his, that's his job. He's got to get a picture of the happy couple back together looking delighted, you know. And <laughs> never time, easy. It's never easy, especially <laughs> with them, you know, because I'm not sure if they are delighted in the first place. But anyway, 
He gets to the restaurant, and by then, of course, it's gone around the restaurant that Burton and Taylor are there. They have virtually no production and no security at all. So in the background of the picture, I have to say they are not looking happy. They're looking enormously uh, self-conscious and disgruntled. Uh, are just, just a great wall of people behind, just peering, and just, just actually crowded around them, looking at them, as if they were waxworks, you know. And that kind of thing is absolutely riveting, I think. There's a wonderful book about Burton and Taylor that's just come out, um, and it's, uh, it's just a kind of cuttings job, but it's, it's amazing to be reminded just of what an astonishing story the Burton-Taylor romance was, and how great their celebrity was in the 1960s and 70s. And, and, uh, Elizabeth Taylor didn't like to be separated from her little, uh, her lap dogs, her air dogs, you know, Hollywood air dogs. Yeah. Um, and, and when they were filming in Britain, in London, she couldn't bring them into the country because of the quarantine laws as they were at the time. So she bought a second yacht in order that the pets could occupy this yacht and it could be moored class. at St. Catherine's Dock That's class. down near the Tower and of also London. Just so you go what? down there and meet your dogs. What amount of money these people really were How much money was that? That's incredible. So anyway, we're waiting for Devon's problem. We're, 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 we're in a play called Waiting for Devon. Yes. And we don't know how it's going to end. They're on their way. In fact, today is um, a, a tube strike in London and it's pouring with rain and uh, I'm not sure if there isn't a terrorist alert. <laughs> yes. so, so the, and the they're, they're married couple, so they could be a domestic. You know, could, you know, the message, absolutely true. Talking of which, I went to see on Friday night. I went to see Heidi Tolbert and John McCusker, um, who were playing at the uh, King's Place down underneath the Guardian oh, yeah, building, yeah. Uh, with Boo Hudeen, who was playing guitar with them. I was talking to him beforehand, and he said, uh, "He said, well, they only got married a week ago." He says they're on honeymoon. He says, "Talk about feeling like a gooseberry." Yeah, that's so great. Yeah, you're going to go with the... We're not up interrupting anything, are we? Yeah, that's right. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah, anyway, it's very good. Fantastic. Very good. Yeah. Are they? Oh, OK. No, I think... Wheel them in. OK. I think Devon and, and Careeria are on the way up the stairs. Terrific. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. This is The Word Podcast. Special guest, Devon Sproul. Hello. Hello. And Paul Carreri. Hello. Hello. Paul's got to first of all explain his haircut. Oh, man. Well, we were in the Netherlands, and uh, I had a big beard at one point and some pretty good-looking long hair, and as a joke, I decided in, in about a minute's time flat to run upstairs in this dark bathroom and shave and the sides of off. And what time day was it? Oh, yeah. It was a little deep into the evening. Was there a drink involved? There was a, a, a bottle involved. Yeah. Right. A, jo- a joke yeah. on who? On, on you? On a, <laughs> uh, Yeah, uh, like sort of like, ha ha. like a joke? And then in the morning, it wasn't quite as funny anymore. Some so people what you appear to have done from where I'm sitting on your right-hand side is you have shaved a large section of your head. Yeah. And then left the rest looking like that of a, of a, of a sort of Second World War American air pilot. Yeah. It Quite started, dashing, actually. It started out because you have this mole on the side of my head, and I told this story when I was 13. These two 12-year-old girls came up to me, and they introduced themselves, and they said, you're Paul, right? And I said, yes. And they introduced themselves and said, listen, we wanted to tell you that we've had a crush on you, but now you got your hair cut so short... We can see the mole on the side of your head, and we don't have a crush on you anymore. The crush is officially over. I was like, yeah, <laughs> na- nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I just got to talking about that mole, and then I just suddenly wanted to see it. So you, you only know about the feminine affection when it's withdrawn, don't you? That's, yeah. It's, it's really, yeah, that's, that's cruel blow. Yeah, that is, they take I used to fancy you. Yeah. It's the yeah. cruelest word now, to the English language. It's <laughs> actually the real test of feminine affection, myself. Oh, yeah, you're still we've, sticking we've, with me? We've fixed it four times since yeah. that first night, and uh, I'm now I'm, I can... 
fixed what the haircut? Yeah. You've yeah been, so was... you've been in. There's been modifications. Yeah. Well, you rolled up your sleeves. Got a pair. We had scissors. one friend who's a professional look at it, and then I tried to <laughs> fix it, and then an actual twenty quid haircut too. Yeah, this is the, it was worse. It's sped now. Well, it's you have thrown <laughs> absolutely everything. This <laughs> <laughs> damage limitation exercise. Budget, that's, right. that's why we asked <laughs> on the elevator up if this if you were going to be doing any uh, video. Right. Also, yeah. <laughs> So, on the road together, (laughs) husband and wife, do you you kind of succumb to these mad, you know, half hours of kind of sitting there in hotels thinking, what could we do now? You know what I mean? I think most, a lot of couples do this on a Sunday evening before they go to work. A lot of couples in normal life. Do you have this all the time? They're just kind of stupid hysterics and kind of keeping yourself amused. And daft games. What sort of things? Oh, well, Paul doesn't like games, so we haven't been playing any games. We, uh... We, yeah, it's we're ready to go home. Honestly, I saw a picture. (laughs) I was looking at your blog this morning, and I saw a picture of you in a fridge. Oh, yeah, that was that was uh, you in a full length Coca Cola refrigerator. So yeah, we did play at 11 p.m. that night at the this Take Root Festival, and so we had a long time in the dressing room. (laughs) So first, for the first like 20 minutes, Paul tried to teach us how to do um, backspins, like. you know, yeah, break, break dancing, dancing spins. spins. So I have a couple of bruises on my back from that. Oh yes. You just tried doing that in the dressing room. That's I tried good. a lot. Yeah. I, and I'm I'm pretty coordinated her, person. Whole, her whole band was trying to give it a go. Yeah. I was really disappointed. No one could pick it up because I, I really thought I was given pretty good direction. But I think it's one of those things. If you don't get it by the time you're about eight years old, I think so. It might. But it's amazing. You... It's like riding a bike it didn't go away. <laughs> <laughs> Did you meet, I think you did, by you jumping on stage when yes. Devon was playing a, at an open mic? No, it wasn't an open mic. It wasn't open mic. Was it your own show? There. <laughs> was it your own show? Was a, in front of paying big... customers? Yeah. How, how, did, they, how did he look to you, Devon? How did, how did what, this... What happened? Oh, well, he had a big mustache and he was, um, again, in his cups uh, <laughs> quite deeply and he... Um, <laughs> But he, he did all right. He did all right. I, so, so, so he, he just came on stage. stage. <clears throat> yeah, last song, I was playing a Johnny Cash song, so he had walked in and said, oh. At that very moment. What yeah. were you playing? What were you doing? I Still Miss Someone. Right. Yep. Wonderful song. And, yep, thanks. It was the last song of the night, though, so I think in terms of random people hopping on stage, it would have been better for me if he'd hopped on a few earlier, but he happened to walk in then. So, so. your big finale, a big finish... And here's this dude, yeah. There's this dude <laughs> in his cups. You must have been horrified, wasn't you? Honestly? No, I was all right. I was all right. I, w- I told him he could sing on the choruses. So. And, and how, yeah. t- after that, how does a relationship develop in those circumstances? Well, you do you get apologize? Obviously, there's an apology. <laughs> yeah. And the apology, to some stage, is eventually accepted. I don't know how long this period takes. Yeah, we were friends pretty soon thereafter. Mm-hmm. Paul, Paul was aiming for more than friends, but that we didn't get to that point for a, another year or a year and a half. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah a lot of mixed Playing tapes. hard to get. A lot of, lot of mixed tapes. tapes. Brilliant. What does the musician do? What can be examples of mixed tapes? We all know about this. We all know about The musician Wait, puts himself how, on I was going to say, ah, does he really? Percentage of the mixed now, tapes. Now, not, not just any songs, but songs written for the mixtape Receivee. Well, Receive-y. to be fair, Paul did release a record, I think it's about 2003, called Songs for Devon's Sproll. Am mm-hmm. I right? Yes. And that was before you got I together? almost called it More Songs for Devon's Sproll. <laughs> <laughs> was it a double L? No, yeah. I mean, this has got to be, you know, this has got to be the great romantic gesture of our times, hasn't it? This? Well, I, it, it was meant to be that, and at the same time, you know, we did have to sit down and have a chat about it, because, you know, it's like, is, it, is this okay with you? I'm kind of, you know, 
Yes, am I stalking you, or, or well, is this acceptable? Well, we were dating at that point. Oh, right. More okay uh, in a professional sense? You yeah, mean, and, and, um, but in the, in the end, we actually determined that it would probably help both of us um, in some form or another, you know, like, well, who is this, who, and who is that? And people looking up Devin would find my record, people looking me up would find her. Oh, I see. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Piece so, of strategic oh, marketing. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like a social network. Reciprocal <laughs> promotion. Thought it through. Would you, like, would you like to enter into a reciprocal promotion? It's a mutuality. Exactly. We're not even married anymore. We just keep this up. In case you couldn't tell by the haircut. That's superb. So these songs, whether they were all about her. Yeah, in the relationship in general, yes. Uh, ups and downs of relationship. At that point, it was mostly ups. <laughs> the first record has some... Uh, no, I don't remember. There's some, there, there, there used to be a slew of songs that were sort of like, give me a break, you know, what is the hold up? That, that was a, a, a branch of the tree of songs about Devin, like, get over here, what is taking you so long, why do you say you're going to come home with me, and then change your mind in the cab on the way home. <laughs> and, but your songs uh, don't necessarily reflect uh, your domestic life, uh, do you? So there's quite a difference there, Devin. Yours are quite different, aren't they? Uh, uh, they um, I think they, uh, they have been pretty domestic. Um, they've changed in a similar way, maybe even from... Um, when we got married to now kind of the, like the last the last record i put out was called don't hurry for heaven before the one that came out a couple of days ago and uh so that was about as domestic as it can get just in that it's uh, about taking care so of So have either of you ever heard a song by the other which contained information that you hadn't heard first directly from that person it was the actual revelation came in actually hearing the song I'd say more emotions uh than news yeah maybe. yeah like, uh, I didn't realise you were that pissed off. <laughs> That's the kind of thing I meant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it must be the most extraordinary thing to first hear that, not, um, you know, not, not, not over the breakfast table, but, but over the radio. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you usually had a hunch, you're just trying to talk yourself out of it, that they, they, she couldn't possibly be that pissed off. And then, oh, I guess she is that pissed off. <laughs> so if you're going to play a, a, a song in a moment, which, which uh, uh, we hope you are, actually, mm-hmm. is it, who's, whose will it be, and who will it be about? Um, we're... we're... <laughs> <laughs> we were going to start with a, a, a song, a new song of mine called Unmarked Animals, and it's, it starts um, about a girlfriend who, uh, who passed away, and I hadn't been able to write much while she was sick about it, and so I, of course, when she can't hear it anymore, I got to finish it. But then the whole, um, the whole relationship thing does kind of creep in um, just in that I seem to be stuck on, on a theme these days, the taking care of yourself theme. So it it, it, it it starts to be about someone and then it uh goes to back to the, the same old same old other person.
questions you ask So many questions It's like whoever you're looking toward Feels like they're sitting on top of the world In the back of the Amico in the Weezer With a bag of tobacco between us I came under the question attack I learned how to question attack back Guitar, Devon, you've yeah. got there. How yeah. old? Um, it was made in '54. Really? So right, right around my dad's age. Oh, <laughs> <really>? <laughs> it's uh, it's traveling harder than he is these days. So. <laughs> <laughs> your father lives on on a commune. You yeah. were born on a commune. Yeah, the, a bunch of the the kind of setting for that song is from Twin Oaks. Um, so and it's commune called there, Twin yeah. Oaks. Yeah. This is where? It's in rural Virginia. So we live in a little college town in Virginia, Charlottesville, and then it's about 40 minutes um, east of there. It's called Twin Oaks. And it's a... Uh, it's not religious, it's, it's, but it's all intentional income sharing, um, founded in the 60s, 
it's an eco community. Yeah, it? it's yeah. not. Its main thing is not environment, but it ends up being quite uh, sustainable and you know uh, green. Um, but its main thing is um, egalitarianism, which is like living as equals and kind of um, yeah, living lightly on the land. Because people's people's image of a, of a commune is, is very much uh, listening to a lot of Grateful Dead. Uh, <laughs> That's your image. Uh, of uh, putting together the skins. <laughs> yes. It's Neil from the young ones. It's Neil. It's from, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and you do very... hear Grateful Dead there. People are there is you know people. Uh, they're are not talking banned or anything. No. Mason, our friend on the label, uh, he, about this yesterday, and he's like. I mean, it, it, they a lot of folks there do look like hippies, and a lot of them are hippies, old and young. But um, but this but, is quite a formal setup, isn't it? Oh, it's for sure. Very, and it's, it's, not, it's not something was thrown together in a hurry. It's I mean, not it's been someone there crashing some on a couch. No, it's a hundred people. <laughs> you know, and it's been there for four years. I mean, it's it's. For, and you it's, you grew up in this commune yeah. from what age? Oh, uh, one to fifteen. And what do you think you learned from that experience? Um, how to talk to people um, and. Uh, I don't know how to how to not be too focused on um, uh, on career stuff. Actually, how to not care if I'm not making any money, still be happy. Sort of <laughs> and thing. you're still very connected with it. I mean, your father's still. Oh yeah, totally. That's right, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a gorgeous place, and it's it's. I mean, it's just what you. For me, it was it was what you'd hoped. There's loving people around you, and they're encouraging you to do whatever you want to do, and to be a good person. So that, that combo. So it you know it's like anything. It's it's like for some kids growing up there, it's not. It's not a good thing, though, because some, sometimes it's not a, a match or their parents are like, ah, I don't want all these people telling my kid what they can and cannot do. And, and, uh, and, and some, so you some kind of belong to the larger community. It's, it's like having more than one set of parents, then. You, yeah, yeah, and, you're, and there's a lot of trust. Parents. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but my parents were interested in doing things other than just being parents, which worked really well there. Like, they, I could hang out with other people and learn from other people and... Um, so what kind of schooling did you have? Uh, lots of different kinds. They were, they were very... Uh, I did homeschooling, I did public schooling, and I did, um, like, Montessori and stuff like that. Right, so. but at 16, you started making music or Yeah, yeah, I started playing on the, on the downtown outdoor kind of pedestrian mall in Charlottesville. That's pretty now. young. Yeah, 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 but I had, uh, you know, I'd already kind of quit school by then and started going to this community college, which is, for us, is kind of like a university, like, it's like a... It's a local. A, a low, low key, yeah, yeah you don't yeah. want to, yeah. So when you say um, playing on the mall, is that, is that what we would call busking? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and what, yeah, what sort of too. music were you playing when you were busking? Was it your own covers, songs? Or, a lot or covers, of covers of what? What sort um, of? Um, I still miss someone. <laughs> yeah, that would be, that would have been a good one. It would have more been like, um, let's see, I'm 16, so like Liz Fair, that kind oh, of thing. Oh, right, yes, okay. Absolutely. So you can do Exile in whatever. Guyville, uh, yeah. Guyville, yeah, Guyville, Guyville. Guyville. That's a terrific record. Yeah, yeah it is really good, isn't it? Is that yeah, good busky good. material, that? You know, uh... It didn't didn't really matter. I think it was more about the attitude of of busking and I mean, and and being able to pitch your voice far enough so people can hear it. But at sixteen, that must have taken some nerve. Um, yeah, it does it at the very beginning, and then you get used to it, and and it, it's it's a good good nerve building. You have to play at the commune. Too. Yeah, I'd been playing a lot since then, and we would have coffee houses at, at Twin Oaks. And I love the way you said you, you, part of what you learned was this uh, idea that being commercial wasn't important, and clearly you make a lot more money as a busker if you play the times they are changing than something like Liz Fair. Well, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I do yeah, really admire that. You know? It seems to be no woman, no cry. I thought that that's would be the international, <laughs> oh, yeah. international busker's favourite, isn't it? Yeah. But how well, would who knows you? Who what I'd be doing now? This is a terrible. 
terrible question to ask a musician, but I, it, to, to explain to people listening where your kind of music comes from. I mean, oh. it's not, there's elements of it, obviously, that I, speak, I suppose an American market would probably call old time. Uh-huh. And there's some that I think we were, English would call musical. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's certain lots of jazz in there, and there's a little bit of bluegrass and folk, sure. and I've seen you playing sure. badgers. And so where, where does it all come from? Where, what's the, what well, was, the, was the roots of what you do? For us, the setting of Virginia definitely factors in, um, but a lot of it is is that we haven't, for the last few years, been listening to a whole lot of um, of, of, of singer songwriter music. So it so I think it comes from other 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 kinds of music, listening to to different stuff, um, and then incorporating that. And I think it just doesn't. It leads hopefully it leads to um, making music that is. Um, yeah, not quite as much in one genre. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that we, you know, we got invited to come over to Africa last year to take part in this sort of odd collaboration um, between Western and African musicians that was based on the the, the discovery of this um, this recording of these two young sisters in this Kipsegis village, and they were singing a, this song, basically, and I. Oh, Kimmy Roger, 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 Kimmy Roger, oh, Kimmy Roger, 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 Kimmy Roger. <laughs> turns out they were saying was Kimmy Rocha, and it turns out that Kimmy Rocha was Jimmy Rogers. And <laughs> and so basically, the, the, we think of the music as going that way, yeah. but it sometimes goes that way too. Oh, and, that's um, sweet. And yeah. so they had decided that no mortal could possibly sing as well as Jimmy Rogers, so they had sort of promoted him <laughs> to sublevel deity and were <laughs> yes. worshipping him in, in fertility rites, asking him to dance so high and sing so high that he would dance right out of his clothes, which would, I suppose, somehow help with fertility. <laughs> so the singing break then oh, is worshipped yeah. somewhere right. in... That's and so anyway, so that deep? I yeah. think because we had um, uh, listened to a fair bit of African music at that point and around that time, which I was per- personally really digging. Um, there, there came a certain point where I didn't like listening to guitar music because I started visualizing the, the, the voicings in my head. And so then we started listening to jazz and instruments that we didn't know how to play and um, so that it could be, be music and mysterious again. And, then, mm-hmm. and I think with the, listening to a lot of the African stuff, um, because we didn't speak the language, you know, there was... It, it, um, Content-wise, it never sort of got its foot nailed to the uh, railroad tracks. You know, yeah. it, you could it could still be whatever you wanted to yeah. be. And um, and so anyway, I think we listened to so much of that stuff, and and um, we're lucky enough to get invited by a gentleman named Guy Morley to come down there, uh, to Nairobi we're to participate in this. Yeah, but we wrote we wrote a song um, yeah. for that project. Um, because we didn't know what it was going to be like, and we were kind of like, well, what is this going to be Yeah, there was very happen? little planning. All we knew was this crazy story <laughs> of Jimmy Rogers and fertility rights. So we wrote a song um, a, a, from his perspective. And, and uh, Paul was in the States, and I was, I was in Coventry, like, killing time between festivals or something. And uh, So we wrote it over Skype. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah we love to. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. play that. Sure. Yeah, what extraordinary story. <laughs> called I Want to Die in My Shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. Well, I've been sidetracked by a traveling show In this old tuberculosis I gotta lie down between my takes My lungs took off but my throat still brings it and I damn I love this western say And I don't mind the Great Depression today 
echoes of the railroad blues Man, I want to die in my shoes Well, if I was to get a website, a podcast, a way of life. There's yet more in this podcast. Does this ring any bells? better known to you and me as the title theme for the 60s TV show Vision On. 
That's a prime example of what's known as production music. You can find that track as well as Liberty Bell, the Sousa March that used to announce Monty Python, and the theme from Georgia Mildred on a new compilation called Top Dog Classic TV and Radio Themes 1960-82. to Now, this is put together from the vaults of DeWolf Music. That's a British company that's been providing music to go with pictures since the early days of the talkies. In the last ten years, the advent of sampling and the increased interest in mood music has meant that there's a collector's market who want to own that music that was once used to punctuate kung fu combat or sell ice cream. This has resulted in a series of DeWolf compilations put together by DJ and enthusiast Joel Martin. I went to DeWolf's office to talk to him and Warren DeWolf about the theory and practice of production music and why it has such strong emotional appeal. They might not know it, but they'll recognise it, and it's that, that wonderful nostalgia that you get from being yeah. a kid and watching TV. I think the other, thing, the other thing also is that they are actually... I mean, they're very good melodies. And because of their popularity as themes, these, a lot of these pieces have been used subsequently over the years in a TV commercial here, in a TV commercial... So they're always... It's built up, it's accumulated. In, in, in the person, yeah, 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 in your yeah, mind. Yeah. You know, do, you, do you think there's something interesting in the fact that there's kind of softness in a lot of this music that is probably missing from, from a lot of popular music today? That um, people associate with that? I mean, some of the music's like that. As Warren said, it's, I think it's more about the melody factor mm. uh, because some, I could play you a track that might be quite heavy. I mean, there's a lot of very strange music in the Dwarf catalogue. Music concrete and, uh, you know, a kind of, you know, there's some incredible jazz, you know, you, you, that you literally would think was a, was a Blue Note record. Right, right. So I wouldn't say it was about being soft. I, I suppose it's more having that kind of feeling of a, you know, like a... Like an old comfortable shoe, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah but it yeah. takes people back, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, one of the things you you you've got featured on here is there is something from an earlier uh, earlier dwarf um, sampler, uh, which is music from from kung fu movies. How did you end up doing music for kung fu movies? <laughs> well, we got a, <laughs> we got approached by a, a very well known company at the time called Shaw Brothers, who were a company in Hong Kong, and they were making sort of low-budget um, kung fu flicks. They, they really were the... The leading the exponent. Leading yeah, yeah, guys yeah. that were first in the field yeah, yeah, at yeah, doing this. Yeah. They needed music. And how they got our name, I don't know. But the phone rang and um, they said they were constantly in demand for making this music and uh, these programmes. Could we do a deal with them in supplying the music? For the program. So, what kind of specifications would they give you for the sort of music that they wanted for something? Well, like I that? mean, to start with, you know, they would send over the films, and, and so you got the finished film to work for. To start with, well, rough cuts. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, that, of course, was quite a long, drawn-out process. And then they thought, well, maybe we could have the library over there. So actually, we sent <laughs> we sent them the whole library to work with. And what they did was that they went through the stuff that then on, and then they. Picked up pieces, and it was a much more convenient way of doing it. So, what's a representative example of a bit of kung fu uh, movie music that uh, you might have? Try, try this one. I 
never having particularly seen a kung fu movie, I can I can conjure a, film, a kung fu movie it was entirely a, it was from the theme that. To a, to a film called uh, Avenging Eagle. I mean, the Shaw Brothers literally made. I think they've made over a thousand films, not just martial arts, but across the whole kind of you know love stories and gangster films and things like that. But they've they've made hundreds of martial arts films. They made hundreds of martial arts films, and um, yeah, I mean. Literally, if you look on, on on kung fu film fan forums, people there are threads about what's the cue on this film, what's the cue on that film. They all know the, the cue is is the way people talk about it, isn't about, it? The about individual the piece of track music, yeah. that's right. is the cue, yeah. and it may only be really really short. A stab. Some of the pieces it, it on could here be three are like seconds. Three, three seconds. Three seconds. Three seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Have you got some of the three the three seconds long? Well, not if, if you want, I can play. Go on. I want to hear something that's three seconds long. Once more, play it again. <laughs> so how long, when somebody's in the studio doing that, how long might it take them to do that, to get that right? Well, <laughs> not long. Really? I get, I get it first time. Now, you also, you've got something here that is, is represented on, on Top Dog, which will be terribly familiar to, uh, to loads of people listening. So that's what's it called? That's the Liberty Le- Bell. Is Liberty it called? Bell. It's called the Liberty Bell. It's um, it's a Sousa march. It's a Sousa march, very good. Yeah, yeah. So that goes way back, but uh, recorded specifically that version for the Monty Python series. No, it wasn't. It was it was it was one of the tracks that we had recorded already. Right. So, so you had it sitting around. Yeah. Does it, is there any memory in the company as to how this came to be the I, Monty Python theme? I, I don't know. I couldn't remember that. Right, right. No. But presumably <laughs> somebody just wanted something perky and military to go along with the... Yeah, I'm, I'm, sure, one of, I'm sure one of them thought it was a great idea to put it on. Right, um, right. Jerry Jones or... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but out of, those kind of, out of those kind of accidents, it's, it's extraordinary how kind of memories grow, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it wasn't, you know, it was uh, um, obviously the, the uh, guys from... The, the, the Pythons uh, were very much into the Dwarf Library because they ended up there was a very long relationship with the company and they ended up using the library for Life of Brian sorry not Life of Brian for um, the the Holy Grail the Holy Grail right and then Terry Gilliam in particular used music for um, Brazil Jabberwocky. Jabberwocky. It was Jabberwocky. And Time Bandits. Right, time right. Bandits, Meaning of Life. Yeah. So might, might some client come in, some producer or director, and say, I want some music that's a little bit, I don't know, Western or something like yeah, that. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, as vague as that. Yes. And how yes. do you go from some a really vague request like that to narrowing it down to what, what might actually work for somebody? Well, I mean, you just have to ask him the right questions and sort of home in on, on actually what he's thinking. Because quite often what someone's thinking and what comes out of their mouth, you know, are, are quite often two different things. So you just have to ask the right relevant questions, right, right. you know. And, and, you know, that might be, well, you know, the type of genre, the, the instrumentation you're looking for. Do you want a melody, the tempo, uh, any reference to any other track that you may be thinking of, um, questions. And how do you then work out whether you've got something in your... In presumably enormous library that might work for them. Well, we've got quite a few people here that have been here a long time, <laughs> and they know the library incredibly well. Um, 
Of course, as time goes on, it gets more difficult. But, but I, it's bound to, isn't it? Yeah. No, because seriously, it's kind yeah. of it's but, folk memory, isn't it? Yeah. Really, it keeps these things going. That's right. But everything, you know, we're in an age of we're in a digital age, and and and, and everything has been sort of metadata, and you know, uh, keywords have been put into all the pieces of music, and we can do searches online for types of categories and genres and moods and tempos. So if you go scary erotic or whatever yeah, it'll do. throw up a load of stuff yes yeah so who are the kind of people have you ever done any research on this who are the people who buy these things because it's not the average record buyer not, is it? not at all but it completely dip- i mean it's, it's it's very wide so you know originally i suppose it went from being you know hip-hop kids so people who wanted to sample music you know we get a lot of request a lot of requests and we obviously try and track down people that have sampled music and lots of people are very honest about it and lots of people aren't honest. So, you know, <laughs> we'll discover that so-and-so on a small label out of Ohio has sampled a, tr- a track from the Monty Python album. And it's it interesting, really, because, you know, when these things, as Joel was saying earlier on about the LPs being found in, 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 in a marketplace or being found in, in a record shop, and you wonder, I mean, we wonder, how on earth did they get there? You know, but that became a sort of uh, an interest amongst <clears throat> hip-hop people. And... Some of the samples that we've got out of that are quite, you know, it's quite, it's quite amazing, really. Yeah, people yeah. like Jay Z, um, Lily Allen, yeah, 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 Lily Allen. It's amazing how this stuff in, in the world of hip hop, it's incredible. Stuff travels, yeah, yeah, it, like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, and obviously it's a shame, and because of that, unfortunately, and this is one of the reasons why we wanted to start this ser- this series to a certain extent is material was being has been bootlegged right. over the last. Years. So at least by coming out with these things, you say yeah, this is ours. That's right. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. So you know, you know, like I said, you know, there's there are the sample heads, and then you know, there's definitely a market of hardcore soundtrack enthusiasts. There's always been a market for film music uh, collectors, and you know, I mean, the next release that we're going to do, which is um, the Michael Reeves film, which find a general, which is probably the most famous, one of the finest, if not the finest, English horror film of the 70s and it's probably the most famous Vincent Price film um, that score was specially composed by us and ended up being put on a library record uh, not the other way around so therefore you know um, and, and collectors and enthusiasts you know are crying out for it um, it's not going to be a million seller but you know but I'm sure, market. yeah I'm sure we'll sell a few thousand it's, and it's a very very cult score that people are literally uh, you know, it's never been released since the time, and, and, and there are lots of people, you know, eagerly awaiting its release. So there'll be more to come. And so, anyway, play us out now with uh, go on. Chooses a tune of Top Dog that's a personal favourite. Maybe you tell us something about it. <laughs> Means nothing to me at all. But go on, no, no, I'm, I'm no experts at all. No, uh, this I think was on the B side of the. <laughs> it's on the B side. No, no, well, this was on the B side of the I level. Uh, oh, I see. Forty-five that was released, and it was, was a theme tune to a popular um, afternoon TV program on ATV. Was it ATV or called uh, uh, called Crown Court? That was Warren DeWolf and Joel Martin talking about Top Dog, the new album of production music from the DeWolf Vaults. That's all for this podcast. If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. 
Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.